This podcast is sponsored by Podbeam. Podbeam is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbeam to host Classic Gaming Brothers. Download the free Podbeam podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbeam provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbeam app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head over to Podbeam at www.podbeam.com for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. And Pottery Insurance from Classic and Gaming and Brothers. Are you worried that a small green elf will break into your home, smash your pots, and steal your valuables that you keep in those pots? Fear no more. Pottery Insurance protects your pots, jars, and urns from would-be adventurers and their B&E habits. Pottery Insurance. It protects your pots, not your pans. everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. Hey everybody, um, how's, how's everything going? Everything's going well. I like how you said hey everybody before that though. Uh, are you, are you asking everybody or are you asking me? I'm asking everybody that lives in our studio. Ah, okay. The door is closed to the studio so they can't hear you. Oh. Sometimes they sneak in. We also lock them in that room, so. I mean, they're locked all throughout the studios. But anyway, uh, yeah, so how have you been, you've been doing? You've been hanging out? Yeah, I guess so. That's what I usually do. What have you been uh, playing recently? Recently, Seth, I've been playing the game Zeitgeist. Uh, not to be confused with the 2022 game by Sample Tech Studios, which is available on Steam and did confuse me when I was trying to look up this game. I've been playing the 1996 rail shooter by Taito. I actually had been looking for this game for a bit and uh i thought it was called zetageist for some reason um and every time i tried to look up zeitgeist i would get directed toward weird conspiracy theory videos so one day i was talking to seth and i said hey do you remember that game that dad used to have on his computer and i was like i think it was called zetageist but i'm not sure and seth said it's this and he sent me the archive.org link and we were good to go it's one of my hidden talents is finding obscure video games from the past now it probably also doesn't help that the game went by a different name at times it was released on the ps1 as jupiter strike and in japan for the ps1 it's zeitgeist and pc it's known as zeitgeist in north america so it goes by a few different names but it's all the same game and uh yeah i originally played the game a long time ago as our dad either had or ha- still has a copy i don't know i haven't looked for it in a while of this game and i used to play it on his ibm aptiva s and also on his thinkpad it's a fun little like arcadey space shooter um though i did originally have trouble getting it to run on my windows 11 pc so i put it through pc em and using my windows 98 build for pc em was able to get it working it's a fun game it reminds me a lot of star fox a bit grittier in terms of like the graphics not saying there's like blood and gore or anything but where star fox is like very cell shaded this has a bit more like realistic looking textures and stuff like that um in the game you're playing as a starfighter pilot and you have to fight aliens and avoid asteroids um one thing i really like is the sound effects in the game they kind of sound like they were taken from other 
other arcade games of the time. I wonder if there's like just a repository of arcade sounds that a bunch of the same companies used. In any case, I've been enjoying Zeitgeist, um, and I'll probably go back and play it. Though, um, it'd be nice to find a way to get it to run properly on my Windows PC. I'm sure there is a way, I just haven't had a chance to play around with it that much. For now, I have to play it with PCEM. Um, and who knows, maybe I'll hunt down a PS1 copy at the next convention that Seth and I go to. Just for anyone who's tuning in and doesn't know about PCEM, PCEM is an emulator, um, but instead of emulating uh, software, it emulates hardware, and the hardware that it emulates is old computer hardware. Uh, so if you want to, to emulate, say, a system that runs Windows 3.1, Windows 95, Windows 98, uh, you can do so. Uh, Windows PCM EM is a, just a tad little more complicated than a standard emulator as it only emulates the hardware and it does not emulate the software. Uh, so in order for you to get software on PCM, you have to find da- like dated software and install it. Uh, usually that's yeah. like through a, a boot disk that's on archive.org of older operating systems that are abandoned. So it, it is a little more complex uh, to get a PCM. PCEM setup set it going. Uh, but once you get it going, uh, it's actually really great for uh, emulating that weird space and time where uh, it wasn't on DOS, nor was it on like modern Windows. Now, Seth, what have you been recently playing? So recently, I've been playing Age of Wonders 4, which was released back in May of 2023. It was developed by Triumph Studios and published by Paradox Interactive. In it, you rule a fantasy realm and you explore a new magical realm in the Age of Wonders series, which is uh, it's a pretty established series. It's been going on for a little while. I think they've take, they take breaks where there's long stretches where there's no Age of Wonders. And then all of a sudden, they'll be like, oh, yeah, by the way, new Age of Wonders. In it, you play a fantasy faction, and what's cool about this one, and I'm not sure if it's in previous ones, but you can kind of design your faction from the ground up, and you get to pick, like, you could be like, I want to be humans that ride wolves or something. I decided to play elves who are a little reclusive, but are good at shooting things, and also that they ride wolves. So they're like foresty elves. I played about an hour of the game and then I had to go to bed. Uh, It was fun. It definitely has that one more turn type of vibe. And when I'm in the mood for a uh, 4X strategy game, it's probably going to be Age of Wonders or CK3, which is uh, Crusader Kings 3. So it's either one of those games that are right now on my uh, 4X itch scratching type deal. Great. Well, today we're going to be taking an interesting turn, to say the least. We're going to be talking about a game that is really going to ask the question, what is a game? Now, this is a question that many people ask, especially in this modern era. What is a game. When you look at narrative-heavy titles like Dear Esther, Gone Home, or What Remains of Edith Finch, and you compare those to titles like, I don't know, Doom Eternal, or Minecraft, or Fortnite, you may ask yourself, what exactly is a game, and what makes Dear Esther a game, and Doom Eternal a game? Or is Dear Esther really a game if it doesn't have things that you might come to expect from a game? Does a game inherently need to have an achievable end goal? Does it have to be fun? in the sense of providing you with enjoyment, or can the game cause you to maybe question your reality? Uh, Maybe even ponder the idea as a whole of our game's art. Now, the question of our game's art goes back to the dawn of games.
games. I actually saw something from like 1983 or so that posed the whole question of are video games a new form of art? Now it's a hotly debated topic amongst people, but one of the games that may come up in these conversations is LSD Dream Emulator, developed by Asmic Ace Entertainment. Asmic Ace Entertainment was the result of a merger between two companies, Asmic Corporation and Ace Entertainment in 1997. Asmic Corporation was founded in 1985 in Japan. It was a subsidiary of the Sumitomo Corporation. The company worked on various games for the Famicom and Game Boy throughout the 1980s, including the Conquest of the Crystal Palace for the Famicom, the Altered Beast Famicom port, and their own games featuring their mascot, Asmic-kun, a pink dinosaur. The other corporation, Ace Pictures, was founded in 1981 and was, as the name implies, primarily focused on producing films, as it was part of the Nippon Herald Films Company. Now, the newly formed Asmic Ace Entertainment would start producing both games and movies. With the 8-bit era coming to an end, they had shifted over to the 16-bit era and began producing games for the SNES and Sega Genesis. And, soon after, they moved on to PS1, N64, and later the Dreamcast. It was after this merger that development eventually began on LSD Dream Emulator. The game was designed by Osamu Sato, a Japanese digital artist from Kyoto. Sato previously had put albums of ambient music out, such as his 1983 album Objectless. In 1989, Sato founded a company OSD and began working with CD-ROM technology in the 1990s. As he wanted to see what the new technology was capable of. Reportedly, he never intended to make video games, but rather he wanted to find new ways of creating art and saw the game platforms as a way to go about this. Due to the work he had done on other projects before, he had some spending cash and decided to buy a Mac 2. Prior to working on LSD Dream Emulator, Sato had previously dabbled in the world of video games, with his first being Eastern Mine, The Lost Souls of Tong Nu, a point-and-click adventure game released in 1993 for Mac and Windows. In Eastern Mind, you play as a man named Rin who loses his soul and is given an artificial soul that has a 49-day lifespan. It's your job to recover your soul by finding a mythical location called Tong Nu. Part of the gameplay is having your character die, as you need to be reincarnated nine times. According to an interview that was conducted by Red Bull Music in 2017, Sato wanted the game to appeal to all audiences, both in and out of Japan. and he felt that Eastern mythology made the most sense to base his project on. He states that he was inspired by the ideas of reincarnation that are featured in some Buddhist beliefs as a way for having the game not end when the main character died. Eastern Mind was released in April of 1994 and was localized by Sony ImageSoft for Windows in 1995. At the time of release, it was described as mist-like by Wired, by the publication Wired, and in a 2015 article called The Elusive Creator of the Most Terrifying Video Games from the publication Vice. The game was described as psychedelic and disturbing. Eastern Mind received some moderate success, enough so that Sato could secure money for the game that would go on to become LSD Dream Emulator. Eastern Mind sounds like a fun game to try out. Uh, Now, in the interview that Seth mentioned from Red Bull Music, Sato states that he doesn't play video games, and he didn't really understand why people would spend 
spend money on them. He states he never intended to make a video game. He just wanted to have art on a CD-ROM that could be released in both Japan and the US. This mentality went into the development of LSD Dream Emulator, as Sato has openly stated that it is not a game. It's just an extension of his own artwork. He also said it was around when the PS1 and Saturn came out that he did have a chance to play a racing game that he became very engrossed with. He noted that if you crashed your car in the game, the game would end. He wanted something like this to be used in his new game as a way to transition to different worlds. His thinking was that wouldn't it be cool if you were playing a racing game and you crashed your car, but instead of the game ending, it took you somewhere new, like the hospital. Imagine Midtown Madness, every time you crashed your car, your character waked up and woke up in the hospital. Or in a different Windy City. Now, the idea of finding ways to transition the players to the new dimension came from a thought that Sato had to appeal to non-gamers. He didn't want to have a project that was frustrating for people who might not be skilled at video games, as he personally wasn't skilled at video games. Now, the inspiration for LSD Dream Emulator's world stemmed from a dream diary kept by Hiroko Nishikawa, a designer at Asmic. Nishikawa had kept the dream journal for over 10 years, and it contained vivid descriptions of some of the odd dreams and nightmares that she had over that time period. The music in the game would be composed by Sato himself, as he was, as mentioned, a musician with a couple of albums out at the time. He used samples to create about 500 musical patterns to bring a chaotic feeling to the game as he wanted this to resemble the chaos of dreams themselves. Now, the name of the game itself, LSD Dream Emulator, does come, in fact, as a reference to lysergic acid diethylamide. For those who don't know, this is also the recreational drug LSD. In the Red Bull music interview, Sato stated that the name was chosen to catch people's eyes. He wanted someone to look at the game and say, hey, what's this now? He also thought he could pull in uh, hippie and counterculture audiences because he thought obviously having a name like LSD might appeal to certain people. In the context of the game, though, according to OSD's official website, the name stands for Link Speed Dream. The game was eventually released in October of 1998 in Japan, and it was not released in Europe or North America markets. How does this game actually play? That's the billion dollar question. It's primarily an exploration game. You walk in a first person perspective through a 3D environment. You can move forward, backwards, or turn. You can also look behind you and strafe left and right. Each level takes about 10 minutes and consists of a dream that you are exploring. It kind of reminds me of uh, an early Hypnospace Outlaw, but that in that game you're the dream police. Each time you start the game, you start in a random location of a map called the Bright Moon Cottage, and the encounters you have may vary from here. You may encounter a variety of psychedelic textures, random objects, characters roaming around, faces that fill the screen, and 3D animals, and so on. Some of the environments that you may find yourself in are a field, city, house, factory, or a Japanese village. For many PS1 games of this era, there is usually a thin haze that extends out into the distance, which, while done for hardware-restrictive reasons, such as not being able to create the draw distance that far, offers another surreal element to the game. A dream ends either after the 10 minutes elapse, if you touch certain things, or if you're killed. When you wake up, the game will make a note on whether or not you experienced a static, dynamic, upper, or downer dream. Static dreams tend to be more defined, Dynamic dreams feature more variety in textures and colors. Uppers are dreams that have a positive tone, and downers are more nightmarish. 
You can also travel between different parts of a location through means of linking, which can be done by walking into walls or into some objects. Now, there are a variety of locations, with the main ones being, per the LSD Dream Emulator fandom page, Bright Moon Cottage, the starting house, it has yellow walls. Uh, you may encounter a dying woman lying in a bed there, but it's not always what you encounter. You may also see a fireplace or bookshelf, but not always. And you can go to the roof. Sometimes you do spawn on the roof. Pit and Temple, a small area with a wall that is set with an ancient theme. Kyoto, a Japanese village with statues, traditional buildings, a rock garden, and a dojo. The Natural World, a large open area with waterfalls, trees, and cliffs. Tunnels connect the natural world with other locations. Happy Town, a very colorful area with cartoon faces on the ground and walls, toy soldiers, colorful creatures, and a large castle. In Happy Town, you may encounter giant floating lips called the Floating Lips. Ooh. And the Violence District, which is home to dead bodies, skyscrapers, and you may see a dude with a gun shooting someone. Is that dude the Duke? No. That would have been a great crossover. If it was just Duke Nukem. In the violence, only in the violence district. But only in the violence district. No, it's just a random guy with a shotgun. It doesn't always happen. It can happen. It is a random encounter. That certainly is random. From here, the world has assorted sub-locations. The Moonlight Tower, for example. The Flesh Tunnels. Clockwork Machines. Or the Long Hallway. And so on and so on. It keeps going. Accessing these locations is done through linking. Usually through interacting with objects. For example, if you interact with the floating lips, they will take you to the flesh tunnels i don't like saying <laughs> I, that that's that a horrible horrible statement about <laughs> floating lips taking you to a flesh tunnel somebody has just zoned out during this episode <laughs> and just tuned right back in when you said and then the floating lips will take you off to the flesh tunnel and they, <laughs> and they proceeded to go look at their podcast player and then they proceeded to immediately go next thing <laughs> now with each dream that passes in the game the world may become more dynamic and surreal you may also encounter a humanoid figure called the shadow man who will observe you if you touch the shadow man you will not be able to use the flash back tool which is used to revisit the previous dream that you have you'll also lose any progress that you've made each dream counts as a day if you go through 365 days you will reach the ending which features a volcano and a weird twisting face what's fun is when i looked up the ending of this game every one of the comments said i didn't even know this game had an ending <laughs> there are also random rare events that can occur uh certain figures that appear in the game can suddenly be very large you might see duplicated figures pop up in certain places where usually only one figure appears for example in the flesh tunnels you encounter these small figures called fetuses and sometimes you see multiple fetuses instead of just one this is a rare randomized event you may also encounter a geisha who appears on a bridge and watches you and when you get close to her her head turns and faces you and so on and so on one of my favorite randomized events is sometimes there is an astronaut who falls out of the sky and lands in front of you and his size may vary uh, another event that can occur is stretching objects where the world around you stretches to strange proportions this can occur occur at random when interacting with certain characters or looking at certain objects in certain places. According to Sato, the random events have been well documented at this point, and in one of the interviews I read, he does not believe that there are any more that have not been found. So there was a period of time where people were like actively trying to chronicle all the random encounters, but at this point, Sato doesn't believe that there are any like hidden Easter eggs left. As you can tell from the way we've been describing this quote-unquote gameplay, no two plays 
days of LSD Dream Emulator will ever really be the same, due to the sheer amount of randomization that can occur. This has led some people even logging their own playthroughs of the game and creating the dedicated LSD Dream Emulator wiki, which categorizes all the different items and encounters you may have. It is a complex game to say the least, and it really is no two version of your game that you're playing is different because the way linking works. You know, it might take you to somewhere that maybe your friend who's also playing the game doesn't go to right away. Uh, you both likely will see a lot of the same things, but you might see them in different orders and stuff like that, or you might encounter some of those randomized rare events like the giant astronaut or the geisha or the shadow man. Now, as possibly evident by the nature of this game, LSD Dream Emulator had a very limited release. Uh, the game would be bundled with a copy of the Dream Journal that inspired the game and a soundtrack. According to the Asumu Sato wiki, around 200 copies of the game have been known to be documented. Whether or not this is reflective of the sales is not exactly known, but it's safe to say it was not a huge seller. The same wiki also notes that there is reportedly a version of the game that does not contain the bonus CD. Uh, however, there's no proof of that actually happening, as all of the 200 copies all have a bonus CD. I mean, we can have some, you know, deduction and say, well, they probably sold more than 200, so maybe there's just stuff that's out there in the Aether. Yeah, or like some random person bought the game and literally put it away on their shelf and didn't even realize people care this much about it sort of deal. That's true, you know? that's true. Uh, an archived version of the PlayStation website does make a distinction between the limited edition and the normal edition as it has ID numbers for both of these releases. However, and oddly enough, the normal edition was reportedly cataloged by Sony after the limited version. Now, due to the obscurity, the game was initially unknown outside of Japan. As emulation became more prominent, however, the game has been dumped, it, and it's grown a stronger following from people who have played it for the YouTubes. Uh, either people watching people play this for YouTube and then deciding that they need to play this for YouTube, or playing it for YouTube so people can watch them play it for YouTube. <laughs> It's a never-ending cycle of people playing and watching. It has also been featured in numerous articles and listicles from websites like Crack.com. Sony would go on to re-release LSD Dream Emulator on the PlayStation Network in 2010 due to high demand. Reportedly, Sato also had noted an increase in younger people attending his art exhibits due to the game's legacy, which is great. In a contemporary review from Killscreen, the game has been described as one of the most unnerving and unpredictable weird videos video games ever made. And Hardcore Gaming 101 noted that no other game has so effectively conferred the feeling of an actual dream. I feel like for 2024, if the Classic Gaming Brothers do Extra Life... Oh yeah, we gotta play this game. <laughs> this will be a good three in the morning game. Yes, like the same level of tired that we were when we were playing Journeyman, we need to play for LSD Dream Emulator. Now, there is also a remake called LSD Revamped by itch.io user FiggleWatts, which is currently available to be downloaded. The most recent version of LSD Revamped from 2023 is reported to have all interactive objects from the original game. This remake was built in Unity and is continued to be worked on. Current plans for the future include adding modding tools, the flashback functionality, special days, virtual 
reality support, rare events, and bonus features. And let me just tell you, virtual reality support for this game sounds like an actual fever dream. As of 2020, there is also an English version of the game that was translated by fans. And as of 2024, PriceCharting.com values the game at $750 for both loose and complete copies, though a copy did sell as high as $1,750 in 2020. So the game is a sought after. Sato himself has often kept quiet in his life and since the release of LSD Dream Emulator. The 2015 Vice interview that Seth had referenced earlier um, was actually one of the first times that he had done an interview in a very long time, and the 2017 Red Bull Music article was also a kind of obscure um, interview to find. When the articles were published, Sato didn't even have a Wikipedia article dedicated to himself, which was rectified as of 2020. And it's even believed that at some point people thought he was dead, which as of the recording this episode is untrue. Sato is uh, very much still alive. He apparently actively maintains his website and a Twitter. Um, However, there was a period of time where people, A, were convinced that he was dead, uh, B, convinced that he was actually uh, like his wife, or C, convinced that the game was like developed by a team of like husband and wife who had been like divorced or something. But no, it was just Sato, just him. Now, the last video game that Sato had worked on was in 2000. He worked on a game called Rhythm and Face, which was released for the PS1. I don't believe it's as weird as LSD Dream Emulator. Um, Beyond this, he has also worked on various art books and publications. He did a 2017 book called All Things Must Be Equal and a 2020 book called Grateful in All Things. Both books coincide with albums of the same name, and he also hosted exhibitions of the same name in 2017 and 2020, respectively. He also held an exhibition in 2018 called LSD Revamped Neo Psychedelia, which marked the 20th anniversary of the game, and at the exhibition, you could have acquired a 20th anniversary re-release of the soundtrack with a bonus CD with additional stuff about the like production of the game. There's also, I believe, a vinyl release of the soundtrack from this 20th anniversary event, and I believe there might have been a reprinting of the Dream Journal. Uh, By the way, the Dream Journal is interesting. You can download it from the LSD Dream emulator website. Uh, It's just a PDF. Uh, There was no known English release of the Dream Journal, but most of the dreams were translated in English in the journal anyway, so like it was just automatic already translated into English, and the dreams are buck wild. These are a person's legitimate dreams that they had for a course of like over a decade, and they are just bizarre dreams. If you think the game is weird, look at this book. It's just as weird. And with that, that's going to do it for our LSD Dream Emulator episode. An oddity, to say the least, and uh, really asks the question, what is a game? Because Sato himself doesn't even call this a game. So is LSD Dream Emulator a game? I say sure. You know, if it wants to be a game, it it, cer- it certainly can be a game. Um, I know Seth's not going to get over the fact about me telling him that floating lips are going to take him to the flesh tunnels where he'll see the fetuses. I almost forgot about that. And then you <laughs> have to remind me. Now getting into our retro rewind, uh, which for those of you who are just listening to this podcast, the retro rewind is where I give Seth a retro game and Seth gives me a retro game. Seth had me play Rick Dangerous 2. The game was originally released in 1990 by Core Design for the Amiga, Atari ST, Commodore 64, 
Amstrad CPC, ZX Spectrum, and MS-DOS. I played the MS-DOS version, and I played the game using the default settings, which were CGA graphics and ad-lib audio. That was very fun. CGA was using this, like, orange color scheme, and the ad-lib was uh, very nostalgic for the type of sound effects it was producing, because everything was blips and blops. The game is a platformer, where you play as the titular Rick Dangerous, who must avoid getting killed by aliens. It's actually a rather tough game, with, uh it being very memory based. So like for the first screen you're on, you walk forward and lasers start dropping down at you in kind of a pattern. And then one drops down at you at a different rate than the rest of them, throws you off and kills you. And then you have to repeat that level. And now that you know the pattern, you can go through it. And that's pretty much how the game goes. Um, it's a lot of one hit deaths, memorizing patterns, and just trying to get through the game without dying. It is a little frustrating, but I thought it was a, a fun kind of frustrating, uh, similar to a uh, a more modern game called I Want to Be the Guy, which also has a very similar uh, memory-based style of platforming. I did enjoy it. I thought it holds up. It's a nice little fun game to play if you like old MS-DOS games. I am interested in checking out the original Rick Dangerous now, which apparently is less about aliens and more about killing Nazis. Next week, Seth, I want you to play Mega Man for MS-DOS. Great. That is in line with the game that I played, that you had me play for this week, which was Mega Man 3 for the NES. Released back in September of 1990, it was developed by Capcom and published by Capcom, except in the European market where it was published by Nintendo. The Mega Man series of games was incredibly popular, and Mega Man 3 is situated between Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 4. Uh, interestingly enough, the original Mega Man didn't have that great of sales, but the team was allowed to develop the sequel concurrently while working on others work just imagine that like oh you like this game well you can do it if you're doing something else and Mega Man 2 would go on to sell 1.51 million copies and then Mega Man 3 would go on to sell 1.17 million copies which is the one that I played uh the gameplay has you playing as Mega Man he's the titular Mega Man man uh where you jump and blast things with your hand cannon uh this game introduces the slide maneuver which I forgot about it introducing until I was required to do the slide maneuver i played specifically spark man's world and it's an nes Mega Man game it's tough and i uh played a little bit of it and then i died a little bit i enjoy it though Mega Man's always a good time i think three holds up so if, if you like challenging action platformers either play rick dangerous 2 or Mega Man 3 next week zach you can play cat fight the ultimate female fighting game for windows Great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode. If you uh, have ever played LSD Dream Emulator or have any thoughts on it, or if you happen to have a copy of it, let us know. Send us an email to classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Facebook Classic Gaming Brothers, Instagram Classic Gaming Brothers, X CG Brothers Pod, Blue Sky CG Brothers Pod, and I believe we're on threads now. We had an issue where we were on threads, then we weren't on threads, and I think we're back on threads. And that is also Classic Gaming Brothers. If you like this podcast and you want to let your friends know about it, that's great. As we always used to say, tell three friends, because if you tell any more, then you're being annoying. If you tell any less, you don't have friends. You can tell those friends that we're available on Podbean and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. With that, am I forgetting anything, Seth? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, That's right. Right.